0: Welcome to Tape Number 8 of Gleanings in the Godhead, Part 2, Excellencies which pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. Now to the reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing in which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 15 THE CALL OF CHRIST Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 1128 28-30 Familiar as the sound of those words are to professing Christians, there is a pressing need for their careful examination. Few portions of God's Word have received such superficial treatment that these verses call for prayerful meditation, some will admit, but few realize that such a simple passage demands protracted study. Many take it for granted they, are, they already understand its meaning, hence they make no diligent inquiry into the significance of its terms. The mere fact that a verse is so frequently quoted is no proof that we really see its import. Yet such familiarity has precluded careful examination and renders it far more likely we do not rightly grasp its truth. There is a vast difference between being acquainted with the sound of a verse of Holy Writ and entering into the sense of it. Our age is marked by industrial loafing and mental slackness. Work is detested and how quickly a task may be disposed of rather than how well it may be done is the order of the day. THE SAME DILATORY SPIRIT MARKS THE PRODUCT OF BOTH THE PULPIT AND THE PRINTED PAGE, HENCE THE SUPERFICIAL TREATMENT THIS PASSAGE COMMONLY RECEIVES. NO REGARD IS PAID TO ITS CONTEXT OR NO LABORIOUS ATTEMPT MADE TO ASCERTAIN ITS ADHERENCE, THE RELATION OF ONE clause TO ANOTHER. NO PAINSTAKING EXAMINATION AND EXPOSITION OF ITS TERMS. If ever a passage of Scripture was mutilated and its meaning perverted, it is this one. Only a fragment of, its usu- of it usually is quoted with the part most unpalatable to the flesh omitted. A particular call is twisted into a promiscuous invitation by deliberately ignoring the qualifying terms there used by the Savior, Even when the opening clause is quoted, no attempt is made to show what is involved in come to Christ, so the hearer is left to assume he already understands its meaning. The special offices in which the Son of God is portrayed, namely as Lord and Master, as Prince and Prophet, are ignored, and another substituted. The conditional promise made by Christ is falsified by making it an unconditional one, as though his rest could be attained without our taking his yoke upon us and without our learning of him such charges may be resented bitterly by a large number of churchgoers who do not wish to hear anyone criticized but if they are prepared to remain at ease in zion if they are content with whether they be deceived or not if they have such confidence in men that they are willing to receive the most valuable things of all second-hand, they refuse to examine their foundations and search their hearts, then we must let them alone Matthew fifteen fourteen. But there are still some who prize their souls so highly they consider no effort too great to ascertain whether or not they possess a saving knowledge of God's truth, whether or not they truly understand the terms of God's salvation whether or not they are building on an unshakable foundation. Take a closer look at the passage. It opens with, Come unto me, and I will give you rest, and closes with, And you shall find rest unto your souls. It is not, as some have supposed, two different rests which are spoken of, but the same in both cases, namely spiritual rest, saving rest. Nor are two different aspects of this rest portrayed. But rather, one view—excuse me—one rest viewed from two distinct viewpoints. In the former, divine sovereignty is in view; I will give. In the latter, human responsibility is enforced. You shall find. In the opening clause, Christ affirms that He is the giver of rest. In what follows, He specifies the terms upon which He dispenses rest, or to express it another way, the conditions up which we must meet if we are to obtain that rest. The rest is freely given, yet only to those who comply with the revealed requirements of its bestower. Come unto me, who issues this call? Christ, you reply, true, but Christ in what particular character did Christ speak speak as king commanding his subjects, as creator addressing his creatures, as physician inviting the sick? Or is Lord instructing his servants? But you but do you draw a distinction in your mind between the person of Christ and the office of Christ? Do you not distinguish sharply between his office as prophet, as priest, and as king? Have you found no distinctions both necessary and helpful? then why do people complain when we call attention to the varied relations which our Lord sustains and the importance of noting which of these relations he is acting in at any time? Attention to such detail often makes all the difference between a right and wrong understanding of a passage. To answer our query in what particular character Christ issued this call, it is necessary to look at the verses preceding. Attention to context is one of the very first concerns for those who would carefully ponder any particular passage. Matthew 11 opens with John the Baptist having been cast in the prison from which he sent messengers to Christ to acquaint him with his perplexity. Verses 2 and 3 Our Lord publicly vindicated his forerunner and magnified his unique office. Verses 4 to 15 Having praised the Baptist and his ministry, Christ went on to reprove those who had been privileged to enjoy both it and that of his own, because they did not profit from it, but had despised and rejected both. So depraved were the people of that day. They accused John of being demon-possessed and charged Christ with being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Verses 16-19. One of the most solemn passages in Holy Writ, verses 20 to 24, records some of the most fearful words which ever fell from the lips of the Son of God. He umbraided the cities where most of his mighty works were done because they repented not, verse 20. Note that Christ refuses, refused to gloss over the perversity of the people, instead, he charged them with their sins and let antinomians observe that, so far from the Christ of God ignoring human responsibility or excusing men's spiritual impotency, he held them strictly accountable and blamed them for their impenitency. Quoting Matthew Henry, Willful impenitency is the great damning sin of multitudes that enjoy the gospel and which, more than any other, sinners will be upbraided to eternity. The great doctrine that both John the Baptist, Christ himself, and the apostles preached was repentance. The great thing designed to both in the piping and in the morning was to prevail with people to change their minds and ways to leave their sins and turn to God. But this they would not be brought to. He does not say because they believe not for some kind of faith may, many of them had that Christ was a teacher come from God but because they repented not their faith did not prevail to the transforming of their hearts and the reforming of their lives Christ reproved them for their other sins that he might lead them to repentance but when they repented not he upbraided them with that as their refusal to be healed he upbraided them with it, that they might upbraid themselves, and might at length see the folly of it, as that which alone makes the sad case a desperate one, and the wound incurable. Quoting Matthew Henry. The particular sin for which Christ upbraided them was that of impenitence. The special aggravation of their sin was that they had witnessed some of Christ's miraculous works For in those cities the Lord had for some time resided and performed many of His miracles of healing. Some places enjoy the means of grace more plentifully than others. Just as certain parts of the earth receive a much heavier rainfall than others, certain countries and towns have been favored with pure gospel preaching and more outpouring of the Spirit than others. God is sovereign in the distribution of his gifts, both natural and spiritual, and unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. Luke twelve forty eight. The greater our opportunities, the greater our obligations, and the stronger the inducements we have to repent, the more heinous is impenitence, and the heavier reckoning will be. Christ notes his mighty works among us, and will yet hold us to account of them. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! Matthew eleven twenty one. Christ came into the world to dispense blessings, but if his person is despised, his authority rejected, and his mercy slighted, then he has terrible woes in reserve. But how many church attenders hear anything at all about this? Often the pulpiteer has deliberately taken the line of least resistance and sought only to please the pew withholding what was unpalatable or unpopular souls are deceived uh, excuse me souls are deceived if a sentimental christ is substituted for a scriptural christ if his beatitudes matthew 5 are emphasized and his woes matthew 23 are ignored in still further aggravation of their sin of impenitence, our Lord affirmed that the citizens of Chorazin and Bethsaida were worse at heart than the Gentiles they despised. He asserted that if Tyre and Zidon had enjoyed such privileges as they, they would have repented long before in sackcloth and ashes. Some of the blessings Christendom despises would be welcome in many parts of heathendom. Quoting Thomas Scott, We are not competent to solve every difficulty or fully to understand the whole of this subject. It suffices that Christ knew the hearts of the impenitent Jews to be more hardened in rebellion and enmity and less susceptible of suitable impressions from his doctrine and miracles than those of the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon would have been, and therefore their final condemnation would be proportionally more intolerable end quote. on the one hand this passage does not stand alone see Ezekiel 3 verses 6-7 to on the other the repentance spoken of by Christ is not necessarily one which leads to eternal salvation still more solemn are the awful words of Christ Matthew 11 23-24 where he announced the doom of highly favored Capernaum Because of the unspeakable privileges enjoyed by its inhabitants, they had been lifted heavenwards. But because their hearts were so earthbound, they scorned such blessings. Therefore they would be brought down to hell. The greater the advantages enjoyed, the more fearful the doom of those who abuse them. The higher the elevation, the more fatal they fall from it. Honorable Capernaum is then compared with dishonorable Sodom, which, because of its enormities, God had destroyed with fire and brimstone. It was in Capernaum the Lord Jesus had resided chiefly upon entry into his public ministry, and where so many of his miracles of healing were accomplished. Yet so obdurate were its inhabitants, so wed to their sins, they refused to apply to him for the healing of their souls." Had such mighty works been done by him in Sodom, its people would have been affected, and their city remain as a lasting monument of divine mercy. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Verse 24. Yes, my reader, though you may hear nothing about it from the pulpit, there is a day of judgment awaiting the world. It is the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. It is the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Romans 2, 5, and 16 For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the God... Godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. 2 Peter 2 9. The punishment then meted out will be in proportion to the opportunities given and rejected, the privileges vouchsafed and scorned, the light granted and quenched. Most intolerable will be the doom of those who have abused the greatest advancements heavenward. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Matthew 11.25 The connection between this and the preceding verses is most instructive. There the Lord Jesus intimates that the majority of his mighty works had produced no good effect upon those who saw them, that their beholders remained impenitent. So little influence had his gracious presence exerted upon Capernaum, where he spent much of his time, that its fate would be worse than Sodom's. Christ looks away from earth to heaven and finds consolation in the sovereignty of God and the absolute security of his covenant. From upbraiding the impenitence of men, Christ turned to render thanks to the Father, on the word answered, Matthew Henry said, quote, It is called an answer, though no other words are found recorded but his own, because it is so comfortable a reply to the melancholy considerations preceding it, and is aptly set in the balance against it. End quote. A word of warning is needed at this point, for we are such creatures of extremes that In earlier paragraphs, we referred to those who substituted a sentimental Christ for the true Christ, yet the reader must not infer from this that we believe in a stoical Christ, hard, cold, devoid of feeling. Not so. The Christ of Scripture is perfect man as well as God the Son, possessed of human sensibilities, yes, capable of much deeper feeling than any of us whose faculties are blunted by sin the lord jesus was not affected by was not unaffected by grief when he pronounced the doom of those cities nor did he view them with fatalistic indifference as he found comfort in the sovereignty of god scripture must be compared with scripture he who wept over jerusalem luke 19:41 would not be unmoved as he foresaw the intolerable fate awaiting capernaum The fact that he was the man of sorrows precludes any such concept. A similar warning is needed by hyper-Calvinists with fatalistic Stoicism. Quoting John Newton, It seems plain, then, that those who are indifferent about the event of the gospel, who satisfy themselves with this thought that the elect shall be saved, and feel no concern for unawakened sinners." Make a wrong inference from a true doctrine, and know not what spirit they are of. Jesus wept for those who perished in their sins. Paul had great grief and sorrow of heart for the Jews, though he gave them this character, that they pleased not God and were contrary to all men. It well becomes us when we admire distinguishing grace to ourselves to mourn over others, and inasmuch as secret things belong to the Lord... And we know not but some of whom we have at present but little hopes may at last be brought to the knowledge of the truth. We should be patient and forbearing after the pattern of our Heavenly Father and endeavor by every proper and prudent means to stir them up to repentance, remembering that they cannot be more distant from God than by nature we were ourselves. End quote Quoting John Newton. As perfect man and as minister of the circumcision, Romans 15.8, the Lord Jesus felt acutely any lack of response to his arduous efforts. This is clear from his lament, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught." Isaiah 49.4. But observe how he comforted himself. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work or reward with my God, Isaiah 49, 4. Thus, both in the language of prophecy, and here in Matthew eleven twenty five to 26 the Lord Jesus sought relief from the discouragements of the gospel by retreating into the divine sovereignty. Quoting Matthew and Henry quote, We may take great encouragement in looking upward to God when round about us we see nothing but what is discouraging, It is sad to see how regardless most men are of their own happiness, but it is comfortable to think that the wise and faithful God will, however, effectually secure the interest of his own glory. Christ alluded here to the sovereignty of God in three details. First, by owning his Father as Lord of heaven and earth, that is, as sole proprietor thereof, it is well to remember, especially when it appears Satan is master of this lower sphere, that God not only doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, but also among the inhabitants of earth, so that none can stay his hand. Daniel Second, by affirming, thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. The things pertaining to salvation are concealed from the self-sufficient and self-complacent Leaving them in nature's darkness, third, by declaring and hast revealed them unto babes, by the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit, a divine discovery is made by those who are helpless in their own esteem. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, express the Savior's perfect acquaintance uh, excuse me, acquiescence. This ends the reading of Tape Number eight. Please continue uh, listening on the next tape in the series. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts. It's on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format. At a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation Bookshelf and Puritan Bookshelf CD set if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.